What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today my guest is Jared Tendler. All right. So this episode, it's it's a little different, yet also very similar. Uh, one of the ways it's similar is that he's an author and he's written an awesome new book uh, called The Mental Game of Trading. But anyways, we're going to be talking about... Uh, trading and investing and stuff like that. And some of you caught like one of my earlier episodes with Brian Portnoy. But anyways, anyways, there's a few reasons why this this is a great conversation. I'm, I'm so glad uh, Jared was able to come on. So one of the things is I'm 36 years old and I have never been smart with my money. I've never saved, I've never invested or anything like that. And now, you know, I, I'm learning the importance of all this. So I've just been devouring books and trying to learn everything I can about all this. And yeah, it's something I'm trying to teach my son as well. So if you're like me, if you're somebody who's just like, oh, I don't really see why I should do this or, you know, whatever, like make sure, you know, you, you listen to this entire episode. Uh, Jared, uh, his book is about trading. I'm a little bit more of an investor and part of this conversation is breaking down the difference between the two and all that. Like when I talked with Brian Portnoy, it was more about like investing and all that. But Jared and I, we talk about, you know, the psychology and just managing emotions and so many other things. And that's the other reason I, I really loved chatting with Jared because no matter who you are, like Jared has so much information in this book about just managing our emotions and making better decisions. So all around, it's it's a great book. Like I, I found myself reading it and applying a lot of the tips and tools and advice he was giving to just other aspects of my life. So yeah, so make sure uh, you check out down in the description below, make sure you're following Jared over on Twitter, make sure you grab a copy of this book. He also wrote a book called The Mental Game of Poker. Me being a guy in Las Vegas, you know I play a little bit of poker, so I will link both of his books down below. And while you're down there, make sure you are following me as well over on Instagram and Twitter, at The Rewired Soul, so you don't miss any news, updates, upcoming episodes, books I'm reading, and I just love talking with all of you guys. But yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jared Tendler. What's up, Jared? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat about your book, The Mental Game of Trading. So yeah, first thing I like to ask is what kind of motivated or inspired you to sit down and put this book together with all of your knowledge and wisdom about this mental game of trading? So back in 2011, I wrote The Mental Game of Poker. And after a couple of years, I started hearing from traders that had picked up the book and said, well, if you quite literally change the word poker to trading, you know, everything applies. And so at that point, you know, I'm not the kind of person who's just going to actually do that and sell a trading book. Um, I started working with some traders and started doing some seminars and some workshops and started working with some institutional firms and really started to kind of build my knowledge base of this whole sort of trading sphere and competitive landscape. And, and then about three years ago, uh, realized that you know I had enough material and was kind of motivated to you know kind of put a book together 
that would consolidate my system and be able to put it out there for traders to you know, really be able to solve the biggest problems that get in their way. Greed, fear, uh, anger issues, confidence issues, and discipline issues. Uh, and it gave me a chance to kind of move into a new market. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of constantly learning and wanting to grow. And so, you know, to be able to kind of move into a new space and learn the nuances of, learn the nuances of it at a high level was, uh, was certainly interesting to me. And as far as the target audience, the target audience for me is really people who are serious about trading. Um, and I think investors will be able to get, get something out of this too. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the purpose of the book is to remove the negative effects that emotion has on decision making. So whether you're making, you know, 50 trades a day or you're making 50 trades a year or you're making, you know, five to 10 investments per year, you want to make sure that you're sober in a sense, right? That you're making very clear, well thought out, logically analyzed decisions and you're not succumbing to FOMO or to greed or to anger, which, you know, really compromises a lot of decisions that that both traders and investors can make. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, classify myself as an investor, and you know, I decided to pick up your book because I've, I've thought about you know trading and stuff like that. But I was really surprised at how well it was put together, and pretty much anybody, you know, can read this despite what they're, you know, how how they're, you know, whether they're trading or they're investing or whatever. But a lot of it has to just do with decision making. But yeah, so I am pretty new to this this whole investing and trading world, right? Like I'm 36, just started this year, finally decided to get a little bit smarter with my money, right? And it took me a little bit uh, of time to kind of understand that there's like a difference between day trading and investing and all that. So the book, right, is called The Mental Game of Trading and you've been coaching people for a while now. Can you kind of explain the difference? Can you break it down a little bit for us newbies? What's the difference between investing and trading? And do you think that some people just like shouldn't trade and should be long-term investors? So the difference between trading and investing is essentially just the time period, right? You're both making probabilistic bets, you're managing risk, and you're trying to develop an edge in the marketplace, right? Day traders, options traders, you know, they're making these types of bets and they're looking for advantages, you know, in smaller time frames, right? Whether it's within the day, whether it's a swing trader who's making bets, you know, over the course of two to three weeks, some options traders that are making bets over, you know, perhaps three to six months or a bit longer. And then investors are doing the same kind of thing. And, you know, typically the longer your time horizon, uh, you know, the larger the type of return that you're trying to make. Um, and, you know, investors tend to make bigger bets. Uh, traders tend to make bets that are, you know, around uh, a half a percent to one percent of their uh, entire uh, account size per per sort of trade or, or bet in a sense. So, you know, I think those are kind of the basic differences. And then as far as like whether somebody should or should not be trading, uh, you know, to me, I think a lot of times, you know, the emotional impact of making, you know, trades on a, on a, a high time frame. Uh, can be re really difficult. In fact, there was one client that is featured in the mental game of trading, and he was able to start day trading uh, after having, you know, kind of gone through our coaching process. Uh, and and that was because we removed a lot of the the greed and fear that he was typically uh, experiencing on on those shorter time frames. So for him, swing trading was the way that he was able to kind of manage his emotions. And I think there are some investors right now who are doing that because they aren't able to manage their emotions quite as well. So 
I don't think that there's, you know, like a right or wrong answer for people forever. I think if you can, if, if, if trading is something that you want to do and you realize that these emotions are getting in the way, well then do the work that's prescribed in the book and, and start to steadily kind of work in that direction. But either way, you still got to be good as a trader, right? You need to take, in some cases, a couple years of studying and work to actually get good at this thing. This is not something you just kind of pick up and get good at really quickly. I mean, you know, the difference between uh, trading and playing on the PGA Tour, right, is what, right? In trading, you actually don't need to qualify for these events. You don't need to be good enough as a golfer uh, to kind of enter the marketplace, right? You just need to have the capital. And so, you know, there's, there's no barriers to entry, but you've got to create those barriers yourself by having an understanding that you need to have enough skill in the game to be able to actually profit from it. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I've I've been learning. Like investing for me, like it's you know I'm I'm kind of just getting into it, and you know I've been watching and learning and seeing how things are and learning as much as I can just about you know day trading and investing and swing trading and all that stuff. I still haven't uh, gotten into like options trading. I have no idea how that stuff even works yet, even though I've read like a ton of books. But anyways, it's what's better for me right now with like my risk management and everything. But uh, yeah, and and as you mentioned, your your previous book was like the mental game of poker. And that's something that I learned playing poker. Like, it's a skill. It's something that you have to, you know, learn how to do. And a lot of it is, like, this emotional game. So, yeah, that definitely makes sense. It it just takes, you know, uh, like, the stuff that you prescribed in this book about recognizing, managing these emotions and, and stuff like that. My I guess my, my one concern for just me personally is I don't know if I have, like, the time because I when I was like researching like kind of like day trading and stuff I'm like you got to kind of like keep an eye on this and like dedicate some time you know I've, I've seen some people they're like oh you know I do it for a couple hours a day or you know whatever and and yeah so so yeah it's something that, I, that I'm considering once I, I get some more time and I learn a little bit more about you know the 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 fundamentals and strategies of it and all of that um but yeah so Speaking of like managing emotions and stuff, like that's something I absolutely loved about the book is that you have so much wisdom in there about emotional regulation in order to make better decisions. Like what I loved is that even for people who aren't trading, there is a ton of value in your book. So early, early on in the book, you have a chapter called Map Your Problem, and it's all about being mindful of your emotions throughout the day. And I've tried, I have tried so hard, like, you know, working in addiction treatment and just having a mental health channel and stuff. I've tried to get people into mindfulness for years because it helped me so much personally with mapping and regulating my emotions. But a lot of people don't even want to try it. So what are, what are some of the benefits of uh, mapping your emotions when it comes to trading. And for those who aren't into this like whole mindfulness thing, what are some of the most effective methods for mapping your emotions, like some alternatives they might be able to try out? I don't know the specific work that you've done, but what I would say is what I'm prescribing is not necessarily just about being mindful about your emotions. I think that's a little maybe too simplistic. What I'm actually talking about is studying your emotional patterns, writing them down, iterating them and them iterating on them for you know in some cases weeks so that you can identify the subtle details for uh, what's going on when when problems begin to arise whether it's with anger or some loss of confidence or even overconfidence right because you need to be able to identify that rise of emotion because if you don't 
then too often people only identify it when it's big. And when your greed is big, when you're already kind of succumb with FOMO and jumping into a position that you, you ought not to be jumping into, you can't stop yourself at that point, right? The emotions have kind of hijacked your decision-making. And, and that's just a, a basic architecture of the brain, right? You need to be able to catch the emotions when they're small in order to be able to stop that emotional volatility from, uh, from kind of hijacking you. So what are some of the base, basic methods? It's simple, right? Have a notepad open during the day and start taking notes about how your, your thought process changes, how your perception of the market or your perception of certain opportunities changes based on, you know, your emotional state. And, and you can, you know, sometimes there are habits or actions that are associated with this. Uh, you know, you might feel a lot of tension in your head when, you know, you're getting really excited and FOMO's kind of kind of getting getting a little ramped up here. Uh, maybe you're kind of hyper-focused, uh, unable to like, kind of step away. You might have some awareness in your mind that, you know, what you're doing is wrong, but you can't stop yourself. Those are all details that you need to write down. And they become, be, become the beginning of what's going to help you to actually consolidate those notes, which you'll take, you know, over several days, maybe several weeks, to then create some kind of a scale where, you know, from one to ten, you're identifying. All right, the early stage of FOMO looks like this, right? At step one, you know, when it gets to level three or four, here's what it looks like. And when it gets to level seven or eight, and where I'm, I, I'm, I can't control myself anymore, you know, here's what it looks like there. That kind of detailing for me goes beyond just mindfulness. Mindfulness, I think, is is much more of a an awareness in real time. But your awareness in real time is dependent on your competence, right? Your knowledge, right? And so what I'm talking about is really cultivating and studying your own patterns, much like you'd be studying patterns in the market. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting that that you say that because it's it's kind of like this uh, this this kind of muscle. Uh, that you develop, and I and I love that that strategy of of writing this stuff down. I forgot who it was. There was uh, this one famous psychologist I used to follow. But anyways, he, he talked about journaling it and mapping these out and writing down your emotions and the situations around it, and you start to see you know, patterns and stuff like that. So for example, like, you know, with trading or whatever it is, it's like, you might be able to see that something else is going on in your life uh, that's, you know, causing these emotions or maybe like uh, something happened with a different trade or stock or whatever, and that triggered something. And yeah, eventually it just becomes a little bit more intuitive, but I, yeah, I, de I definitely see what you mean. Like it, it takes, it takes time. And something that I've just personally tried to do with, you know, uh, especially getting into trading and stuff like that, that or investing rather is is just slow down uh, and really like look at things and I've been trying to research and investigate you know different you know stocks a little bit more different uh, cryptos a little bit more and try to learn as much as I can and kind of watch and not only monitoring my emotions but the emotions of like the market and like what people are saying and and all that um, but yeah so uh, I think it was you know in uh, the first chapter, I think it was, where it, it was talking about greed, and I, I really connected with that. And I like to think of myself as this guy who can like, you know, like I was saying, like monitor my emotions and make these rational decisions. But it felt like, like when I was reflecting on, you know, some of my, uh, you know, just this first year of like getting into like investing and like all this stuff, like it felt like you were calling, kind of calling me out with some of the dumb decisions I've made <laughs> early on in this journey. But yeah, I, I, I didn't even realize how greed was affecting some of my decisions. So what, what are some of the, the things that you, you, you touch on in the book, uh, on how greed can kind of sneak up on us and what are some of the signs that we might be able to look out for? 
glad that uh, I was able to help you uh, recognize your own uh, your own greed. I mean, that's that's really the purpose of the book is to provide so many details for what many traders and investors typically go through, so that you can kind of line up and match up, you know, kind of your experience with with particular problems. Because there's a lot of people that get this wrong, right? I think a lot of people think that they have greed, and sometimes they actually have anger issues. Sometimes they have revenge trading. Sometimes they have confidence issues. Sometimes overconfidence is really the issue. So yeah, being able to kind of properly, you know, kind of self-diagnose, self-analyze, you know, is is a lot easier because of the work that I've done to kind of consolidate all that, uh, all that the, the, those signals in a sense. So what are you looking for when it comes to greed? Well, you know, for example, you start focusing on the money <laughs> and your account balance uh, rather than, you know, the percent that you're trying to make or the price action or your decision-making process, right? When you're when you're trying to make, uh, you know, a certain amount of money, or you start dreaming about the Lambo that you want or the beach house that you want, uh, you know, your judgment becomes a lot more clouded, and you know, it becomes a lot easier to uh, uh, make some mistakes. Um, if you're ignoring downside risk, um, if you start to get over leveraged and oversized, if you know you have trouble kind of taking profit, uh, if you think you can outsmart the market. Um, yeah, I think it, it, during during like kind of a, a drawdown, um, you might start looking for uh, uh, trades that gonna that are gonna like kind of instantly eviscerate you know the losses that you've had previously. Um, you might start bragging about your winners. You might start talking to people that you wouldn't normally talk to, uh, you know about about uh, you know how much money you've made, uh, friends and family, or maybe just some some random people. Uh, you know, that, that's going to kind of give you an indication that uh, there's a lot more emotion at play, right? Because that's not something you would do, you know, in a more balanced state of mind. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned, and I definitely learned from it, was, uh, you know, not taking profits and stuff like that. And, and I think that's one of the things that kind of clicked for me when you wrote about it was uh, not taking profits because that is, you know, greed because the whole idea behind it is, oh, I'm not going to take uh, profits because what if it goes higher? Then I'm missing out on potential, you know, whatever. And, and yeah, I, I had, I had that happen. with <laughs> It was up and I'm like, sweet, it's just going to keep going. And then it just, it, it shot down and it's been a couple months and it's just finally like recovering a little bit. And, and yeah, like I, I actually laid out a spreadsheet and gave myself like, you know, some, uh, some kind of benchmarks to, to kind of take it. And, and I did that recently. I took some profits. I got a really sweet stranger things Lego. It was awesome. But anyways, uh, yeah, I took some profits, but even still, I, I recognized it again. I was like, oh man, well, what if, what if it like jumps up, you know, a few more percent like tomorrow, you know, whatever it is. So, so yeah, that's, that's definitely something I've been trying to uh, keep an eye out for. Um, so, so one of the other uh, chapters I loved was, uh, on fear. It was such an excellent chapter. And I could honestly talk all day about this topic. It's something that like really helped me out with like my, my recovery from addiction and just managing my emotions as a whole. Right. But, um, something you specifically discuss is FOMO, this fear of missing out. And I've seen that a ton in both the, the stock community as well as in the crypto community. So being new to investing, I, I, I started watching a lot of YouTubers and following influencers to learn from them. And I know I'm not the only new person who does this, right? Like YouTube is a gigantic platform uh, and it's easy to, you know, just sit back and watch videos. But 
Here's, here's something I've been kind of curious about. Do you think that following influencers and YouTubers who make a living, like kind of sensationalizing, like uh, the news, do you think that that plays into our FOMO when, you know, like, especially on YouTube, there's like these like wild, like thumbnails and clickbaity titles, like, oh my God, you don't want to miss this and all this stuff. So um, if, if that is the case, uh, what's a good way that we can learn from those with experience without kind of getting like sucked into the hype? Well, first off, I, I'm, I'm excited that you're excited about fear and FOMO. Um, I, I certainly could talk about this stuff all day as well. Um, I, I think the logic is maybe a little bit reversed here, though. I think the reason why you and others want to follow influencers and YouTubers who are specifically sensationalizing news, right, that, that you almost kind of want to be seduced, right? You want to be able to kind of find a way to make easy money. And, you know, maybe that's not something that you logically think about every day, but deep down, right, is your motivation to make money quickly and easily without a lot of work? Or is it to actually learn and develop a skill set and a competency that you can build and use over the long term? You know, if it's more the former, right, it's not about, you know, what, what they're doing. It's that you want that, which is why you're a consumer of that type of sensationalism. Because not every influencer or YouTuber, right, focuses on selling their material, you know, in that way. There are some, and I've seen them, who are much more sober and pragmatic and realistic. They, they sort of speak the truth about what you're kind of getting into. And so if, if that's the kind of person that you're following, well, then it's a lot easier to get, uh, you know, not sucked into the hype because they're not providing it, right? So you need to have some, some sobriety here. You need to be able to kind of... Uh, be aware of and make sure that you're highlighting the downside risks, right? The downside results that are possible, right? Really looking at kind of the the, the stratification of the outcomes that are, are kind of plausible here. Uh, and, and rather than just, uh, you know, focusing on people who just keep telling you to buy the dip. So what's a good way you can learn from this without, you got to focus on developing skill and competency because that is how you make money, not just randomly or getting lucky, but actually from from real skill. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that uh, I, I had to learn and reflect on. And, you know, I forgot where it was, but uh, but I was I was reading something or watching something. But yeah, like early on, you know, like you have to have like a little money to play with, almost like like with poker, right? Like I, I had some play money before I got into like tournaments and competitive poker and all that. But, um, but yeah, I, I've seen and I've learned and I've like asked myself and reflected like, why? Why am I, you know, following this and all that kind of stuff? And it's really interesting too, because I'm a big stats nerd and you know look at just you know like try to look at things like scientifically and i'm looking at people's like accuracy and you know and uh like you mentioned like that that whole like buy the dip mindset and all this and and i've been looking at this and kind of like keeping notes on like accuracy and predictions and stuff and i'm like huh all right not that great and i i, I don't know if you're familiar with philip tetlock's work but that's what i think about a lot so yeah I've, I've kind of narrowed down who i'm like kind of listening to following watching and just keeping up with the news and all that kind of stuff so yeah so in the book you dive into topics like uh perfectionism and these high expectations that we set for ourselves so why why do you think it's so difficult for us to cut ourselves some slack when we make some of these mistakes and what are some of the ways that we can work on this great question uh, and it's actually one of the most common problems that I face uh, or that I work uh, with clients on. And frankly, 
perfectionism and high expectations are talked about in every single chapter. Uh, you know, it talks about in the greed chapter, the uh, fear tilt uh, or the anger chapter, the confidence chapter and the discipline chapter, because it is so common and those performance flaws can create every single type of mental game issue that I see. Now, the question here is a little bit loaded. And the reason that you can't cut your slack is because perfectionism and high expectations don't give a damn about anything other than getting the results that it wants. So it doesn't make any sense for you to cut yourself some slack when you demand so much of yourself. Now, I've talked about this a lot in the book, but I'll give you some quick kind of uh, you know insights. First off, the one of the main reasons why perfectionism and high expectations is so problematic is number one, perfectionism believes that perfection is possible over large samples of time. Right? It is possible for you to be like theoretically perfect given your current skill set. Right? You can make the absolute best decisions you possibly could at that time. But guess what? As soon as you've done that, your competency has actually grown. And now the definition of perfect is going to move and grow and change. And so to be perfect over the long term, you kind of have to hit a moving target. So perfectionism thinks that it's possible to like almost like enter this like heavenly state where you just never make mistakes again. And that's just functionally impossible. High expectations believe a similar illusion, which is that the expectation believes where the expectations of, is effectively a guarantee, right? Whatever you're expecting of yourself, right? To profit from every trade or, 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 or investment you make or to, to make more money year over year or whatever your expectations are defined as, it effectively is guaranteeing that outcome. And I think you and I can both agree that those outcomes are far from guaranteed. And yet you believe them. So in order to firmly correct your expectations, you have to just eviscerate them because they're completely useless. The reality is the only thing that you can expect is your absolute worst. And I know that sounds pathetic, but it's true because that's the only thing that you can guarantee to show up every single day, right? Without any effort or any work, everything else from your very worst to your very best on a given day, you have to earn through your preparation, through your focus, through, you know, good habits, uh, eating properly, sleeping well, like all the stuff that you do to get yourself in a good state of mind, good emotional state, right, is earned. And so, yeah, I'm not saying like, you know, on days where you're you're really bad, but not that bad, like you go out celebrating because you, you know, you didn't suck that bad today. What I am saying, though, is that you can't expect your absolute best. You can't expect these outcomes to occur. You can only expect your worst and then everything from that point forward you earn and you do get proportional credit for. The better you do, the more you get, you know, kind of the pats on the back. Now, I can promise you that some of you are thinking like, well, this sounds ridiculous. But when you get into the book and understand kind of how it fits in the larger perspective, you, you'll see how true it all is. Yeah, and I, I really hope, <laughs> I really hope anybody who has that grabs a copy of the book because, yeah, like you mentioned, you you touch on this this quite a bit, right? And yeah, I, I recognize myself just like beating myself up. I got into a really dumb, uh, well, you know, and cutting here since we're talking about cutting ourselves some slack. I got into, uh, you know, uh, uh, right as soon what is that IPO, right? Right when a, a stock came out, even though like I've heard like a bajillion times like that's not a good idea, and you know, I beat myself up for it and like. 
like, and and then I, I had to reflect on them, like, well, you did the, you know, you did what you could with your knowledge, because I thought like I, I researched it very well and I waited and all these other things. Um, but yeah, kind of like what you mentioned too, this idea of perfection, like it's constantly moving and every time we make a decision or anything like that we're learning we're growing a little bit more and all that kind of stuff you know and it's something jesus something i try to teach my son which i also try to remind myself of you know it's about you know uh more of the the decision making process and not the outcome like what did i do looking into this and you know where were my emotions and all those things that's like the best we could do so for this uh final question i want to nerd out with a little psychology because I've been loving learning about all these different biases and stuff. So what are some of the primary biases and fallacies that we fall into, like based on your experience, right? And even if we can't get, get rid of some of these biases for good, are there any strategies that you think that, you know, a lot of us can start to implement to spot these different kind of cognitive errors before we make these dumb decisions? Well, first off, I actually want to correct one of your biases, which is that your biases can't be correct, corrected, <laughs> okay? I know that's a common thesis out there, right? Uh, but even Kahneman, who is kind of the, you know, kind of grandfather of all of this, says very clearly, right, that a lot of these biases come from our reference point, right? And to me, our reference point is kind of our base level psychology, the beliefs, the illusions the, uh, that we have. And, and a lot of them are kind of fueled by some of these fundamental performance flaws that I've, I've talked about. So yes, these biases can be firmly corrected. Okay, I'll give you two examples of them. Number one, the confirmation bias, right? The confirmation bias basically believe, means that you seek out information to confirm a pre-existing uh, thesis or idea. So right, you have this uh, belief that you know, the Silicon Valley companies are superior, uh, Silicon Valley tech companies are superior, you know, to tech companies uh, based elsewhere in the U.S. And so you're going to kind of value those companies at a higher level than than other companies. Right. And so what's going to happen, right, as you as you are doing research on some new potential investments or trades to make, right, you're, you're doing this sort of fundamental analysis and you're looking kind of side by side, you're you're kind of going to focus your attention more on you know, the information that confirms your existing bias. Now, why would somebody want to seek out information that confirms something they, they already know, right? At that point, you're really convinced that you don't want to learn. Well, now, why would somebody do that? Well, the reason is because they have a basic confidence problem. And you wouldn't necessarily think about that, right? But you want to preserve your existing competence because you can't handle being wrong. So when you're able to kind of fix the flaw in your own psyche that, you know, doesn't allow you to be wrong and make mistakes, well, then it's a lot easier for you to want to seek out information that violates your existing biases or your confirmation bias, because you want to keep learning and making the best possible decisions you can. But when you have a weakness in confidence, confirmation bias is a form of protection against that weakness. Another one uh, on the confidence side of things here is, is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is where uh, some people are so unskilled that they don't even know how unskilled they are that they become overconfident. And on the flip side, you have people who are so incredibly skilled that they falsely believe that other people know what they know. And so they become underconfident, right? So now you have people who are overconfident and have no skill, and you have people who are underconfident and have a ton of skill, okay? Now this, you know, kind of bias effectively happens right, because of these false perceptions of our skill set. 
And so, you know, when you're a bit more rigorous in understanding where your skills line up in the marketplace and ask the questions where your weaknesses are, you know, as the person who tends to be overconfident and where your strengths lie that provide an edge that most people don't have for the person that tends to be underconfident, you can start to rebalance and get your confidence to be more accurate. Because at the end of the day, confidence is really just a, a reflection. It's, a, it's your own perception of your own skill set, right? And we want our, our, our assessment of ourselves to be as accurate as possible. And the more accurate it becomes, the less you're going to succumb to the Dunning-Kruger effect. So again, those are just two examples of you know, biases that can be fixed. And every single one of them happen because of fundamental flaws in the way that we understand ourselves. Dang, Jared, that was that was very well said, and I and I really I, I haven't really thought about that like with that that reference point because as we learn as we grow and all that, and that's something that I just personally try to do whenever I, you know, uh, for example, like uh, when people are like hyping or talking or you know whatever like uh, about a specific stock or whatever it is, I try to I try to find somebody who's saying the exact opposite of it to see what their arguments and all, and all that are because the confirmation bias uh in all on all aspects of life can get us into a lot of trouble so yeah man uh thank you so much i i appreciate you coming on and everybody i i hope you enjoyed that conversation and please make sure you check out the description down below make sure you are following jared and grab a copy of his book the mental game of trading i'm gonna link his other book too, the mental game of poker uh because yeah like i said like i said one of the reasons i love this book so much is because it it provides value for like literally anybody so hopefully that you're you're like okay well you know maybe i'm gonna get a little smarter with my money i'm gonna you know dabble in this or you know whatever it is even if you decide to start investing like i am uh and not trading like i guarantee you you'll walk away with value from this book so make sure you check it out in the description below and while you're down there make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes or uh, any of the books I'm reading, and I just love talking with all of you. All right. But yeah, if you're uh, listening on Apple or Spotify, follow, subscribe. On Apple, you can leave a rating and review. And something else that you should all be doing is share this episode on social media. All right. All this stuff helps get the word about the podcast out there, helps with the algorithms and all that. And if you want to support the podcast in any other way, there's a few links down below uh, to the rewiredsoul.com where I've self-published some books about mental health and how I've kind of gotten my emotions under control. So you can check those out. You can become a patron. And something else that's helped me out a ton is therapy. So there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp online therapy so if you want affordable therapy from the comfort of your own home i've personally used this service so feel free to check out that affiliate link for better help all right but anyways another huge thank you to jared for taking some time out to come on and chat about his book and yeah i hope all of you have an amazing rest of your day and i will be back very soon with another episode talking to another author about their book i'll see you next time